You guys, last week, you remember, we looked at how much we have to expect opposition when we walk in obedience and faith to God. Do you remember that? So Nehemiah was, you know, they were getting the wall built. They did it. Man, it only took 52 days to do this whole thing, which is insane when you process the fact that this is the wall around the entire city of Jerusalem. This is a big deal, right? This wasn't like a tiny little wall that you're building like we see all through uh, New England and specifically here in New Hampshire, like the old, you know, boundary lines of property lines and stuff. No, this was a wall, a protective wall with big, big stones that they were building. And they were building it from nothing, from rubble. And what did we see? We saw Sambalot and Tobiah, right? These two, like the Batman and Robin of the evil side, right? Just, just whatever, man. These two guys that just will not stop being annoying to them. And we talked about the fact, right, that the enemy isn't going to take a break. Is he? The enemy doesn't take a break. We need to recognize that. We don't want to give the enemy more credit than he's due, but we also don't want to end, underestimate him. He's an angel. Like he's a fallen angel. He's, he is bigger than you and me. But guess who he's not bigger than? Our God. We need to keep all these things in mind all at the same time. But the fact is, he's not going to take a break. He's got his little, like I always say, whenever people say like, Satan made me do it. Satan's got bigger fish to fry. I think Satan's probably more worried about Putin or about all these other people in the world that have much more authority and can do much more damage because they can press a button and launch a nuclear bomb. That's probably who Satan's messing with. You and me, we probably got this little tiny imp that's like, eh, 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 and kicking us in the shin. But guess what? Even that imp is a fallen angel. So let's not underestimate, but also let's not give him more authority or power than he's due. Amen? We see that they're not going to take breaks. This week, you guys, we're going to continue to see the enemy bringing attacks against them. But instead of it being from the outside, since that didn't work, we read at the end of chapter 4 that they kept building the wall. They kept doing it. It was something that didn't stop them at all. So when it doesn't work from the inside, now the enemy's going to come and attack them from the inside. Did I just say... It, if it doesn't work from the outside, the enemy's going to come in and attack him from the inside. So remember, we talked about this point last week that when we're in the middle of something, it's probably the most dangerous space to be. So, church, Great Bay Calvary has been around since 2014. 2014 to 2022. I hope this isn't the middle, but it's further along than the beginning, Right? Does that make sense? We're heading into the dangerous time. We're heading into the time that we're like, this is how we've always done it. This is, we do harvest hoopla every year. What about five years from now? We do harvest hoopla every year. I know, and nobody shows up, and we've got all this extra candy. Should we keep doing it? We do harvest hoopla every year. Lots of churches fall into that role. That's dangerous. Holy Spirit, if you want to cancel anything, you have the right I want you guys to know that every year we as a board get together, and we just started that process last year, but the heart of that is this, and I say this to the board, everything, everything minus his word and worship is on the chopping block. That might drive some people in our church absolutely bonkers. As a matter of fact, I know it does. <laughs> Why? Because they're like, we do that every year. <laughs> You're right, but not this year, right? Or why are we doing it this year? That's the question we come with. God, do you want us to do this? Yes, why? 
What's our goal? What's the purpose? You get it? I don't want to ever be a church that's stuck in doing things just because. I think that's a very dangerous place to be. I digress. Let's go back to the main point here, you guys. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Before we do that, I haven't prayed over the word, so let's take a moment to do that. God, you know the word that you're going to bring tonight, Lord. You know, Lord, and I trust, Father, that your word says, Lord, that it will not return void. God, I'm asking, you know the situation of each and every individual heart here, God, and I don't know why the Spirit fell so strongly on worship tonight, but I know it was for a reason. So, Lord, the soil that's been tilled up in us, the word that's been spoken, Lord, to us from your word, Lord, knowing that, yes, you do understand where we're going. There's nothing, there's no one here, there's nothing we've gone through, Lord, that you're not like, yep, I get it, I understand. And God, yet you still love us. You still want us to be close to you, Lord, walking in obedience to you, walking tight with you, God. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you pour your spirit out even in this moment over the word that you're about to speak to us? Pour it out in our hearts. Till up the soil. Continue to do that work, Father, that the seeds that are planted tonight, Lord, would take root. And God, I have no idea what you want to say tonight to each individual heart, but I know that you do. God, do the work that only you can do. God, get me out of the way. Father, we are here to just glean from your word. God, please, Father, have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse one of chapter five says this. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. What a wonderful start to the chapter. So here was Nehemiah concerned with the task that God had given him to build the wall. That is all that we've heard from Nehemiah. That is the drum that he's been banging, so to speak, right? He's like, he gets there and he's like, he goes out, he examines the wall. He tells everybody like, this is how we're going to go about it basically. And we get to it and everybody's doing their little section. They're doing their thing. We saw all of the ways the enemy came against them. And at the end of chapter four, we saw this awesome victory that they had over the enemies. Nothing thus far has stopped them from building the wall, even though they've come up against nothing but opposition. From Sambalot, from Tobiah, we see that there's still good work happening. And now, what do we read here? A great outcry from the people and their wives against who? Not against Sambalot and Tobiah, against themselves, against their Jewish brethren. Can you imagine Nehemiah being like, yes, okay, th- oh God, thank you for getting us through this section. And then he hears this huge outcry. He's like, oi, vey, are you serious right now? What? You ever feel that way? Who here has kids? Who here has more than one kid? Yeah, then you've had those oy vey moments, haven't you? Dad, mom, you're like, What? I don't have time for this, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? That's kind of how I feel like Nehemiah, that's where he's at. He's like, oh my gosh, can you just feel the stress that he's got to be feeling? Let's read and find out why these Jews are angry with other Jews. Verse two says this, for there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, 
Let us get grain that we may eat and live. That sounds innocent enough. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for, our, for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. In other words, we're all human here together. Our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So there's these three main things happening here that is causing this massive outcry. They're all involving money, and they're all involving greed. That's it. Greed. The greed of the rich. First, I mean, I guess not all of them are. A famine doesn't really have anything to do with greed. First, there's a famine, right? There's this famine. That's not anybody's fault. That's just life. Famines happen. So they were in the midst of a famine. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just an event at this point of history, but I... I need us to hear why all this mattered. Think about this, you guys. These people, these men mainly, where were they at most of the day? Building the wall. Pouring out time trying to make sure the wall was built. They don't have a ton of time to go back and plant grain and deal with things. They're in the middle of a famine, so that's also not happening. What amount of wage are they earning from building the wall? Nothing. So they don't have any money to go buy grain to eat. So do you understand what they're saying? They're like, man... We've been killing ourselves in ministry. We've been doing this work that is something God has for us to do, and now it's costing us, literally costing our family food, lack of food. Second, what we see is that those who had the money to pay the people to plant and reap, they were charging the poor to buy grain from them. And they were charging so much to the poor that it was causing the poor people to mortgage what little fields they may have had or vineyards or even their houses to buy grain to feed their family. It's pretty dirty. They were put into a no-win situation. Thirdly, we see that some, they didn't want to mortgage their properties, so instead of borrowing on their stuff, they just went to the Jews and took out a, a high-interest loan. And this was a huge interest rate, you guys. I read a couple different scholars. There's nowhere in scripture that I could find that said specifically the interest rate. But according to the scholarly input of like knowing what the exorbitant amount, what was considered usury for the day, which is where we're going to find later, that that rate was 12%. Think about that. Most of our car loans, even if you've got pretty bad credit, and maybe I'm wrong here, 4 or 5%, pretty high. I don't, I don't know. I've got pretty good credit, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm out of the range. Anybody here have really garbage credit? No, I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is 12% is a high, credit, a, high, a high interest rate for most things minus maybe a credit card, right? And who really needs a credit card? Nobody. Do you get my point? So most things like food, and all that stuff, we don't charge 12% because that's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous, I mean, think about that, you guys. It's a stupid percentage rate to charge. So what was that leading it to, you guys? These rich Jews were like, you can't pay your debt? You can't do that? Well, you know, you got a son. He can work my fields too and make me more money. 
nothing in my way. You have a daughter who can work in my house, so keep it clean while I'm out working on the wall. Send her my way. Not a good situation. What did it leave the people in, you guys? Left the people in a really divided state, you think? The haves kept taking more, and the haves not, the have-nots kept losing more. And there was no way out of it. And I need to say something to you guys here because the thing, as I studied this, that stuck out to me, and hear me on this, and I, I know anybody that's been here any amount of time, and if you're watching online or listening to this later and you've never heard me or this somehow magically ends up on the radio since we're going to be on the radio very soon, I want this to be remain in there, whoever does the mixing for this. I am not political. I don't really care. Vote for who God calls you to vote for. I'm not talking about politics here to speak about politics, but I do want to mention one thing that I feel like we cannot go without. There's no ideology, human ideology, that will ever work here on earth perfectly when it comes to money or government. We can no more rely on capitalism and democracy just because our little experiment has lasted a lot longer or maybe a little bit longer than Marxism and communism. It doesn't mean we can rely on our way of thinking. It doesn't. There is no perfect system that's going to save us. Only Jesus can save us. We need to hear that, you guys. Because what does capitalism lead to? Greed. Doesn't it? What does communism lead to? Laziness. What's the common denominator among all of them? Humanity and our sinfulness. There's no right system. I need us to hear that, you guys. So no matter what things we're looking uh, for in this world to kind of find salvation in, we're not going to find it in those things. If that's where you're looking, Christian, you're looking in the wrong place. You need to be looking to Christ. Why do I say all that? I say all that to say this, you guys. What happens inside of the church body? What happens inside of church, much like what should have been happening inside the Jewish people's own world, should not look like the rest of the world. Can we agree on that? We are called to be holy and set apart. We're called to be different. What were these people doing? Acting like the rest of the world. The haves are like, how can I make money off of you? The have-nots are like, dear God, how am I going to survive? It's, it's gross. It's disgusting. It shouldn't be that way inside the church. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. We're supposed to be walking in holiness, in set-apartness, not taking advantage of one another for our gain. I'm not acting like anybody here is doing that. I'm just saying it's gross to me to think that someone in the church would be doing something like this. It's gross to me to know that there are churches out there and on TV that say, send me your money and I'll send you a wallet. Send me your money and I'll give you some water. Send me your money and I'll make you rich. That's disgusting, isn't it? All right. I'm off my political stand. You guys, our money is a tool to bring glory and honor to God. Each of us should look at our money and say, Lord, how do you want me to use it? Because if you think you, if you're here today and you've got money, God can take it away in five seconds. If you're here today and you don't have any and you're like, man, if only I had money, if only I won the lottery, if only I did this, if only I got this huge inheritance, then God... Man, I would be doing 
all these amazing things with the money that you've given me. Well, can I tell you something? If you're not doing what God's called you to with the little bit of money that you have, you won't do it with a lot of the money. It's just a fact. You practice now with what you're going to do with your money. I love that we have a church full of people, you guys, of all varying wealth amounts and all varying things. And here's my heart for every one of us, that God would be honored and glorified in the way we use our money. That's it. I mean, that's not it. Just in the money perspective, (laughs) right? That's it. That's really all I care about with you guys is your money. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. I want to see us grow in the Lord, and I want to see money's part of that, right? Like, what are we doing with our stuff? How do we use that? Because I feel like a church that's saying, God, it's yours, just like we were praying tonight, right? God, my heart is yours. My vocal cords are yours. Everything I am is yours, and that's the stuff you give me too. God, what do you want to do with it? That's awesome. That is not what's happening here, and it's kind of gross, isn't it? Verse 6 says this, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Nehemiah here, you guys, is brutally honest with us about how he felt. He was ticked off. He was angry. Here they had been unified and strong against this enemy from the outside. And now greed and usury and just people wanting to take advantage of their own people is what stops the building of the wall. It's what brings these people to their knees on something. How gross. How annoyingly, like, there's not good words to pick, you guys. In my flesh, I've got some words, but those are old words that I don't use anymore. But that's the emotion that I can kind of imagine him, him having. Just minor amounts of rage frustration, anger. And it's halting the mission. You guys, Nehemiah was frustrated. He was angry with them. Why? They had a lack of concern about being obedient to God's law. That's the first part, you guys. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. This is right out of Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. If you'll remember right, the Ten Commandments were handed down when? Exodus chapter 20. That's the first time you read about the Ten Commandments. And so you have this, and then two chapters later here, here's what God said. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. They're breaking the law. They're literally doing the polar opposite of that. 
The fact is, you guys, they may have done better to gone to the heathen tribes and said, hey, what interest rate will you charge me? And it might have been lower. Do you understand? This is disgusting on so many levels. He was frustrated that their lack of obedience to God's law and, and, and the disunity that it was bringing among the people. And I want us to stop there for a second. You guys, it's not wrong to be angry. I need you to hear that. It's, it's not wrong to have an emotion of anger. Don't we all have it? It's what we do with the anger that, that makes it wrong. And I don't know about you. I have a high emotional, like, I get angry about things. I get sad about things. My wife makes fun of me constantly because I bawl all the time at movies. And she's like, she'll be over there wiping a tear, but she'll be like, you're such a baby. Because <laughs> she's wiping a tear. And I'm like, <laughs> right? So that's just me. And if I see something that I feel is unjust, man. And guess what? When I get really angry, this is another little quirky fact about me. When I get really angry about something, guess what I do? I cry. <laughs> I don't know why. I've watched movies where it was like you see something so unjust happening in a movie and my emotion that I attach to just anger is crying. I don't know why, but that's just me. So if I ever come up to you and I've got a smile on my face, which is another thing I do when I'm really angry, and I'm like, <laughs> but I'm crying, I'm like, oh, watch out. You better run. I'm just being real. Like, when my kids saw that, they were, ah! they knew that was not a good time. Notice this, though. Nehemiah got angry, but he didn't just stay angry. Did you see what it says there? Let's read it again. Verse 6 says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Verse 7, After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers. He dealt with the problem in a really wise and measured way. He didn't just hear them say that, get angry, turn around and just blast the people that he was angry at. Isn't that kind of our MO? Isn't that exactly what the enemy wants you to do? Husbands and wives, isn't that easy? You made me mad. Rawr! You just rage. And then as you're saying it, you're like, no. <laughs> right? You want to grab the words and pull them back, but it's too late. And hopefully you have a spouse that's walking in the Holy Spirit in that moment and doesn't just turn around and go Rah! back at you. But sometimes that happens too. Friendships happens that way, doesn't it? That's kind of the way the enemy wants to play that out. We should be more like Nehemiah. Nehemiah took time. He prayed. He gave it serious thought. He stopped for a second. Lord, what would you have me do? You guys, how much damage and hurt could be avoided in our lives and in relationships that we have if we just take some time, take the emotion to God and say, here I am, God. This is what I'm angry about. This is what's happening, Father. I'm praying to you and I'm asking you to give me wisdom as I seriously think about how to handle this. Lord, what do you want me to do? Help me, God. Give me a handle on this emotion right now because this emotion in, in and of itself is not going to help the situation. I need to know what you want me to do with it. You guys, we would save ourselves a lot of hurt. We would save the church body as a whole a lot of hurt. We would save our families a lot of hurt, our friends, wouldn't we? No? Yeah? Okay, I see some heads nodding. I need feedback, y'all. Nehemiah 
He confronted the problem head on after he prayed about it, after he took it to the Lord, after he would thought about it, like, okay, how do I deal with this? Nehemiah confronted the problem head on. I want you to see this. He went to them and he rebuked them. He just rebuked them. He was like, hey, this is wrong. He didn't go and talk behind their backs. He didn't engage in months of debate with about 16 different other people to make sure that this was the right way to do it. No, he heard from the Lord and he went to them directly and he dealt with it. Something else we can learn from. And he rebukes him. Can I say this, you guys? Love doesn't always look like excusing and looking over faults. However, love sometimes looks like looking over a fault. How do you know the difference and when? The Holy Spirit. God gives you wisdom in those moments to say, you know what? Think about this, you guys. We have a ton of visitors all the time, and praise God, we keep bringing people to the Lord, like just a few here and there every year. Ten last year. I'm hoping for 20 this year. That's my prayer. But the fact is, you guys, and we've already had one, amen, but the thing is, is that we're like, listen, people, no, more than one. We've had three. Yeah, so, but the fact that we just had one a couple weeks ago. The point I'm making is, is that whenever they walk in, I'm going to look over their faults. Whenever a non-believer is walking in the church and they're wearing a shirt that's totally inappropriate, you know, I'm like, who cares what shirt they're wearing? I'm not going to deal with that. And whenever they've got language and they're dropping F-bombs, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. But there will come a time when they know the Lord that I will start looking at them and saying, you know, that's really crass language and it's really not good. Like, it's just, there's better ways to say those words. Do you get the difference? There's a time to confront and deal with it. And there's a time to look, overlook things. And that only can be known through the Holy Spirit. You can't just know that on your own. So as the Lord leads you guys, sometimes it's important that we call out someone's garbage. And that's what he did here. And I want us to hear this, you guys. Problems, they need to be dealt with directly by every leader. Every leader must deal with them directly. And I pray this for everyone here that calls this church home. I need you to hear me on this. I was praying this as I was studying this this week. I pray that no one here can ever accuse me of anything other than maybe being offended because I went to them one-on-one and confronted the problem head-on. If they're offended by that, well, that's between them and the Lord, but I don't ever want them to have another reason to be offended. To say, man, you talked about this with who? With everybody before you came to me? Why am I hearing? You get my point? Church, if we all practice that, do you realize how much less offense there would be in this world? In this church? And again, I'm not saying this is like rampant in our church. As far as I know, it's not really happening. I don't want it to happen. Nehemiah, you guys, he calls him out in a couple of ways. He says this, why would you be enslaving your own people? How gross. How wrong. And then he says this, he's like, considering you were just released from slavery not long ago yourself, and then knowing that they would go back and buy people, even from the tribe of Judah and the northern kingdom, they they would try to engage in raising money as a community to buy people back out of slavery. Like, they would do these things, and now their own people are like, yeah, but I'm going to do that, and you're going to not be able to pay for this. It's gross. He calls them out. And then he says to him, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? Like that question alone is pretty important, isn't it? If you fear God, your life will look different, won't it? But he even adds this to it. He's like, 
okay, so even if you don't fear God just for the sake of fearing God, don't you think and reflect about how that reflects on God among all the other nations that hate us? When they're looking in and they're like, dude, we would treat their people better than they treat themselves. It's, it's despicable. Lastly, he says, you're so wrapped up in greed and sin that you've lost sight of everything that matters. They're so hyper-focused on making sure that they have more, that they're taking care of themselves, that they've got their own backs, that they are self-centeredly making sure that they're good and set up to get through this famine, to deal with all these things, and at the end of this, come out way better than they started. And guys, I gotta say this, that is too, too common in churches today. It's gross. That's the only other word I can think to put to it because it's just gross. It's, it's ugly, it's dirty, it's, it's nasty to me. It looks too much like the world. I don't want that to be true for us. I don't want that to be true in our lives, you guys. Finally, you know what we see Nehemiah say? He doesn't say, you should feel bad about yourself. He doesn't go to the people and say like, man, you need to apologize to them for what you've done and stop it. No, he doesn't say that. Do you notice that? He didn't say that. You guys, I need to tell you something. There's a major difference between feeling sorry and repenting. Major difference between feeling sorry and repenting. He wasn't telling them to say, you should feel despicable about yourself and all that you've done. No, he says this, you better get some skin in this game because it's your skin that's brought all this stuff out. It's your flesh. It's your greed that's brought this situation about. Guess what? You're gonna kill your own flesh. You're gonna, you're gonna get some skin in this game and you're gonna give back the spoils that you've taken. That's what he says to him. And he says, on top of that, even out of your own stuff that you've taken, you're gonna give a hundredth to each person. Each, <laughs> you're gonna give a hundredth to each person it's an important point, you guys. And I need you to hear this. I need us to hear this. Repenting isn't always a massive blow to your finances, like it was to these people, to your self-esteem, like it probably was to them as leaders and being like, oh, wow, we are really acting like the scum of the earth at this moment or whatever other thing. It's not that every time. But I can always tell you what it isn't. It's not just saying you're sorry. How do you know what that looks like? What does repentance look like? You guys, what does repent mean? It means turning away and walking the other direction, doesn't it? It's more than just a feeling. It's more than feeling bad and saying you're sorry. It's turning around and walking away from it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this on your own. So can I tell you what it is, what repentance is? Sometimes it's eliminating things. Sometimes that's what it is. You desire this thing and keep putting it on the pedestal above God. It could be a human being. It could be a video game system. It could be a drug. It could be whatever it is that you keep putting above God, and it's eliminating that thing. If it's a human being, we can't eliminate them, but we can, min we can not be around them, right? Sometimes it's avoiding things. Sometimes it's adding accountability, being real with somebody and keeping it that way. For your own sake. Sometimes it's literally flushing your drugs down the toilet. 
pouring out your alcohol into the sink or getting a porn blocker on your phone or telling all of your friends that you like to gossip with to call you out on that garbage if you're gossiping. Repentance looks different, you guys. It looks different. Ultimately, though, here's what repenting is. Turning away from your garbage and walking hard and fast towards Jesus. That's ultimately what it is. Verse 12 says this. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests. Oh, this is so, this is even more gross. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise as well, basically. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, which means so be it and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So we see here that the nobles and the leaders took what was said to them, weighed the truth of it, and realized their sin. And can I say something to you guys? There is always the hope that as we are called to confront someone, that if it's done with anything but spending time in prayer and serious thought, that we should probably wait. Does that make sense? That there's always this hope that when we go to someone, there's a reason we're going there. And here's what we're not going for. We're not going to give them a what for. You guys ever done that in anger? I'm just going to let it rip. I want to make you to feel as small as I feel right now. You guys ever done that? Give them a good tongue lashing? Feel better because you've ripped them to shreds? You guys, the only goal of ever confronting anyone is this, repentance and restoration of relationship. That's it. If you're not there yet, and the reason that you're going to go confront, spend some more time in prayer and serious thought and get yourself to a place where you can say, my goal here, Lord, in confronting them with this situation is for them to repent and to restore this relationship. That's, that's it, man. And you see here that Nehemiah took that time. He went there and he laid it out for him. You guys are gross. Look at what you're doing. This is despicable. This is horrific. Why are you doing these things? He wasn't easy on them. He confronted them. He told them the truth. He showed them the ugliness of their own stuff. And thank God they received it and said, you're right. You're right. Man, we're, we're screwing this up. And so they repented and they came back. But you know what's even more gross about this, you guys? Can we talk about this? He says he had to call the priests because they were part of the nobles and the leaders. Do you remember what we were told about the priests whenever they came with Ezra and them? They didn't have to pay taxes. How much more money were they making? That's really gross. God help a religious leader, myself included, that has taken advantage of people in that way. That's so disgusting. It's so gross. And he calls him out. He's like, man, just like I'm shaking out my robe here, I pray that God would just make you nothing. Give you nothing left so that you can begin to understand that you need to build yourself back up in him and not in your own way. Verse 14. You guys encouraged? (laughs) Verse 14 says this. 
Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the, their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. From, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were, fowl were prepared uh, for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Verse 19 says, remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. You guys need to understand something. Remember who Nehemiah is. So Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He was like the chief of staff over the thing. Guess what? That wall didn't get paid for by their taxes, remember? That wall was paid for by King Artaxerxes. The wall was, was financially done. They just had to build it. We also know that because uh, Nehemiah came as kind of the head over this whole thing, the king sent him with a stipend every month. So this food he's speaking of is an abundance of food, but that was from the king every month to him because the king had put him in charge of this rebuilding project. And so we need to understand what he's saying here. He's not bragging in this section. That doesn't fit at all with what we know of Nehemiah, does it? And so we can't look at this and be like, oh, Nehemiah, now you're saying like everybody else was putting burdens on and you're like, then look at what I've got. No, it's quite the opposite. The reason he tells us that 150 Jews sat at his table is because he's like, I am taking care of my people. Nehemiah explains in this section of scripture, he's not bragging, you guys. He's trying to say, I'm, I, what I did was I tried to practice what I preached. I practiced what I preached. I did not put an extra tax of the governor's provision on the people, even though he had a right to, but he was like, I'm already cared for. I'm already cared for. I don't need more. He also didn't just lead the building of the wall. It says that he put his hand to it. He did it. What he could do, he did. He was trying to get the wall built. That was his main thrust. He didn't waste time by being like, oh, that piece of land is pretty choice. And since the king keeps giving me more money, I've got the money when everybody else is poor. I'm going to buy that land. I'm going to focus my time there while the wall just waits. No, he was like, no, my focus is this wall because that's the thing God's called me to. And that's the thing I'm focused on. I'm not worried about what I could have or what things might be available to me. I'm worried about what God has for me. Church, we need to hear that. We need to hear that. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. I've got a nice house. I like my house. I like my cars. I like my stuff. I'm glad I've got a vehicle to get me from Rochester to here so I don't have to walk in the snow. Right? But the point is, you guys, it's just a thing. I'm not trying to go get some 20 twin twins on it, like some nice rims. I'm not, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the 20 twin twins, 22-inch rims? Come on, y'all. I'm not trying to deck my car out or make my house like this bastion of like, oh, 
right? Like Versailles, like Versailles or whatever. Like I'm not, that's not my goal, man. You know what I want my house to be? What it was this Sunday when we had a bunch of people over in it and it was so stacked full that you could barely hear anybody. It was cacophonous. I love, and I'm not saying this to brag, I'm telling you my heart, man. I want my, build, my house, our house, to be a place like it was this Thanksgiving when it was so stinking loud that we had the TV downstairs with football on up all the way and the girls are like, <laughs> laughing so loud that we still couldn't hear the TV. That's what I like. Because my house is meant to be used. That's what I love. My heart is to see my stuff being used for his kingdom, for his glory. That's the way we should all be looking at it, right? That's, that's the point, you guys. So here's Nehemiah. He didn't put this extra tax even though he could. Man, I saw something that reminded me of this whenever I read this part. I just saw something recently. Maybe you guys did on the news. There's a pastor. I don't know where. I didn't really dig that deep. But he was rebuking his church because they hadn't bought him this watch that was extremely expensive watch and that they were sinning horribly and that's why God was not blessing them financially because he didn't have this watch on his wrist. How disgusting. How disgusting. I'm sorry, y'all. If you ever hear that from me, slap me. As hard as you possibly can. Slap the taste out my mouth. Listen, that's right, that's right. You guys, this is a key principle that I see here in Nehemiah that I need us to hear. Some of you guys might have heard this as a military term. It's this, leaders eat last. Leaders eat last. You guys, I do my best to follow this to the point that my wife usually gets mad at me because when we're doing events here, if you ever notice, I just walk around and keep talking and wait for everyone else to be done. Then I go eat. Not because I'm trying to be fancy or whatever, but because I want to make sure there's enough for everybody. And if I don't get any, I'm fine with that. I seriously am. Leaders eat last, you guys. If we all have that mentality, if we all look at our lives and look at our leadership and where we are, you guys, we are not here to be served. We're here to be the servants. Deacon is a place of authority in the churches. Do you know what deacon means in the Greek? Table waiter. You're a servant. The pastor is supposed to be the chief servant teaching everyone and showing everyone this is how you serve. If you're all serving me, then I'm, you're not learning anything and I'm just being a total jerk and not doing the thing that God's called me to do. And God forbid that would ever happen. Leaders, you guys, eat last and I need you to hear something. We are all leaders. Where are you a leader in your workplace? I don't care if you're the lowest level employee in your workplace, you are still given an opportunity by God every day to lead. How are you going to apply this principle? Because it's not just about food. Do you understand that? It's not just about food. Leaders eat last in the sense that, you know, leaders within their context are willing to get their hands dirty and not just say, go do that. You know, they're willing to get their hands dirty knowing that I'm not going to send somebody to do something I'm not willing to do. If we ever have the privilege of getting an assistant pastor, I'll tell you where he's going to start. The same place I started. Cleaning the toilets. Making sure the building's ready. Making sure that our senior pastor's been taken care of. And I'm not saying that just because I am that now, but because that was my role. I wanted to make sure that Pastor Jim had a cup of coffee waiting for him. Someone tonight was gracious enough, Steve, I think it was you, to give me a cup of coffee. I just stole your blessing, dude. Sorry. But listen, 
That's so hard, so hard, but I appreciate it. Do you understand what I'm getting at, you guys? Leaders eat last is not just eating. It's every part of your life. How are you leading in your workplace? Are you being you know, faithful to work? Are you, make, are you setting an example for those around you? Are you not just asking someone to do something because you're too lazy to do it yourself? Or are you genuinely like, yeah, I would be willing to do that because it doesn't mean you have to do everything. It's unwise to try to do everything, isn't it? The question isn't, are you going to do everything? The question is, are you willing to do it? You guys, we need to remember that we're just other humans. We're not special. And I don't care if you're in authority or if you have no authority. The person over authority of you puts his pants on the same way you do. They're not special. However, because God's put them in a place of authority over you, honor them. As long as it falls in line with God's word, do what you can to be a good employee for them. Because guess what, you guys? That's the learning and ground of like learning to lead. Another thing that I always say is that you will never be a good leader if you cannot learn to follow. And there are far too many people in this country today, and I'm going to sound like an old guy, an old fart right now, but I got to say, man, this next generation, I feel like it's just so prevalent to where people don't want to take the time to follow. They just want to start leading. And you're not going to know how to be a good leader until you learn to be a good follower. So, Nehemiah, you guys, I love what he does here. He asks God in verse 19, the only person that matters when it comes to what he thinks, he's the only one that matters. You realize that? It should make confronting people really easy because if you're like, Lord, I want to restore them to a place of repentance and I want to restore this relationship, it really sets your heart at ease because you go there with a heart of love and saying, look, man, I see this going on in your life or this is despicable and you need to stop it or whatever. And it's up to them how they react. But what it doesn't change is your heart for them and it doesn't change your heart with God. Amen? So Nehemiah asks God to remember him. And Nehemiah is saying, man, God, I'm trying to walk this out, this calling that you put in my heart. I'm trying to do my best to show these people what servant leadership looks like. I'm trying to to give of my finances and of my stuff and of my time and of my effort to just show them, look, I'm with you in this. I am not above you. I'm not special. I'm just trying to be with you and get this done. Guys, if we have a heart like that as a church, do you see how much that unifies and brings us together and how much different it is compared to everybody trying to be out for themselves and and, and, and figure out what makes them look the biggest and the baddest or what gives them the most authority or how they can make the most off of this situation or that, how they can come out with the biggest amount of clout at the end of the situation. You guys, churches like that are, are a dime a dozen. Go find one. I don't want us to be that church. I want us to be a church that's saying, God, we're with you. Let's do this. Let's do this. And if that means that I am an unknown my entire life, I'm fine with that. But God, also, if it means that you want to put me and position me in a place that I have authority and that I'm doing it, oh God, please let me do that well. Let me do that with a heart of just wanting to serve. You guys, I think there's three big takeaways for us tonight. Number one is this. 
When the enemy can't get us from the outside, he will definitely attack on the inside. A lot of times through your family, unfortunately, sometimes through the church, through others in the church. We need to remember that. We need to keep that in check and on guard. We need to be gracious to people around us and say, you know what? You're being used by the enemy right now, but that's not who you are. We have far too many people too that have walked away from the church because so-and-so hurt them. And I'm like, you don't know Jesus very well because Jesus will never hurt you. I will hurt you because I'm a human. You will get hurt by other human beings. You will never be hurt by Jesus. Second, if we get angry about something, and we will, and we will, we need to pray and give it serious thought before we react. It's important. And third, when we get direction from God, we deal with the problem head on with those that are involved with the only goal of bringing them to a place that only the Holy Spirit can bring them to repentance and to restoration of relationship. And I guess I would add a fourth, looking at it from the other way. There's no other reason to confront, but the fact is, you guys, is guess what? If you're the one being confronted, the fourth thing I would add is this. Seek God on your own. If you get angry, guess what? Go back to number three and remember that if you're angry with someone because they've confronted you with something, to take that information back and pray about it and give it some serious thought before you just dismiss it out of hand because you don't like what you're hearing. There's a lot of value here for all of us, you guys. And I'm, it's sad to say that this was over 2,000 years ago and we haven't changed much as humanity, have we? We still have a lot to learn, man. Last thing I want to leave, with, leave you guys with is turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's the deal, you guys. We're never going to deal with any of these things without the help of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that even when things get tough, God has got us and God has got this church. He's got us and he's got our church. He's got his church universally. He knows what's up. He's not thrown off his game. And these things are all going to be used for God's glory. That's what he tells us, that I'm going to work all things together for good. And so in light of that, you guys, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 says this. Hear this. I don't know where you're at tonight, but hear this. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You guys, God does a work in us, even through this garbage stuff that we walk through for his glory. And it carves us into a closer image of Christ than we could ever get another way. It's an awesome thing, you guys. It's another reason to praise him, even in the midst of a battle, and even if that battle is coming from the people we love most. God has got us, amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, this, this chapter's tough, man. Lord, we, we, we look at this stuff, and God, I don't envy Nehemiah. And yet, God, it doesn't take much looking around or thinking even through our past that maybe we've found ourselves in a similar situation, Father. And sadly, Lord God, I'm betting if everyone here is like me, they were on the side of being the one that was being despicable. And sometimes, Lord, they're the ones being angry at the people that are being despicable. God, we are just as human as they were. 
So Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not walk around with haughtiness of our spirit, Lord, or feeling like we're somehow better than or special, God. But Father, I do pray this. God, God set us apart for your kingdom. Father, make us a people that are different than the world around us, God. Lord, again, not because we're so special, but God, because we want to see you made famous. God, we want to be people, Lord God, that are being leading leaders and leading people to you, Father, in whatever context we're in, Lord God, in our families and in our workplaces, in our schools and everywhere we find ourselves, Lord, even at Market Basket, God. Everywhere, Lord, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be ones, God, that are saying, Lord, how can we serve? What can we do? Pour your spirit out on us, God. Fill us up tonight, Lord God, but not just tonight, Lord. I pray, Father, tomorrow morning when we wake up, we would be like, oh, Lord, I need a refill. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would never start, stop pouring in, God, and we would never stop asking for more. Because, God, we need that much. We need you. We need you. We need you, God. There's... There, there's nothing we can do without you, God. Help us, Father. Be with us, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.